You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Galatians 4, week 3 in Advent, um, we are focusing on the aspect of joy in this teaching, uh, but we're going to look at uh, joy in a different way. We're going to look at uh, a journey from slavery into sonship, and we're going to do that by looking at Galatians 4, and we'll start in verse 1, and so we'll just jump right here into the text. So join me. It's on the screen or on your Bibles. This is the Apostle Paul. He writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to this word believing that it is your inspired word. And we believe that the Holy Spirit comes in our life and it makes these words come alive. He brings life to these words. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word for your purposes today, that you would bring conviction and gladness in the areas that you desire, that, Lord, that we would see it as sufficient wisdom and the joy of our life. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. And so to be an heir is to be a legal recipient, a recipient of an inheritance. It's to say that you have in your future a promise of power, of position, of property, or of wealth. Or maybe some combination of all or a few of those things await you. It's, it's yours, just not yet. It's yours in the future, just not in the moment. Now, many of you in this room are in some ways heirs in a capacity. Some of you may be written in the wills of your parents, of of loved ones. Maybe you are heirs in some regard to some future property or some future financials that are coming into your life. You are heir to those things, heir to those few things. Yet for most of us, it doesn't change the way that we live. We're not Focus. We don't live our lives worried or, or concerned about the fact that we may get a house in the future or that we may get our uncle's Ford Focus some years down the line. We don't think about those things. It doesn't impact our life. Yet, yet, if we are an heir to something more substantial, if we're an heir to maybe a great position of power, of a great fortune, or even of a great kingdom, it might change the dynamics of how we live in the present, knowing what we have in the future. I don't know if you guys have Netflix. If you have Netflix, maybe you've watched a series called The Crown. Uh, In that series, you might become familiar with the dynamics 
of what it means to be an heir to a great throne of power and how that alters one's upbringing. The crown is a a series that revolves around the life of the royal family, and, and it is centered around Queen Elizabeth, about her life before her coronation and after her coronation, and due to her being the heir of the great throne of England, she had a pretty rigorous upbringing. As a child, she was not allowed to pick where she went to school, what she studied, who she was seen in public with, what she could say. And even eventually, as she got older, she didn't necessarily have all that much choice in who she was to marry. Now, she was an heir to the entire throne of England, a great power, great responsibility. But as a child, she had very few choices. She was almost, or in some regards, a slave. Very little control of her life. Yet, she had the promise of an entire kingdom waiting for her. But there was no room for slack, no room for mishap, no room for youthful celebration in her life early. Now, that is the point that Paul is trying to make here in chapter 4. When one is heir to a great promise, even though that promise will eventually be theirs in the future, they are held slaves to that promise for a while out of fear of missing out or messing things up or out of obedience to try to earn the status of that promise. They are under watchful eyes, guardians or managers to the day of their coronation, whenever that coronation may be. Now, Paul is not telling us these things so that we have greater empathy for those who are heirs to vast fortunes, that we understand the complexity and the struggles of their life. No, his point here is to say to you and me, those reading it then and now, that we as the people of God, we are heirs. We are heirs, and we're not heirs to trivial things like Ford Focuses or money or possessions, but we are heirs to a great promise of a greater kingdom given to us by God. In fact, the scripture says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And what is Christ heir to? Well, in Hebrews 1, it tells us that Christ is the heir of all things. And so as believers in Christ, what that means is that you and I are heirs to all things with Christ someday in the future. So I want you to bookmark that in your head, to realize this, that you are heirs to a substantial kingdom. You have promises for you in the future that have been given to you by God. That is not something that we take lightly. That's not something we scoff about. These are amazing realities that will be ours in the future, but not yet here currently. Now, Paul says that we as heirs are too enslaved in some manner, that because we are heirs to this great promise, we are somehow held in bondage. It says in verse 3 that we are children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I like that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are two different ways that we can understand this. And I think there's a combination between these two different meanings that give us the fuller picture. What does it mean? Well, first, it might imply, and it does imply, that the elementary principles of the world are a reference to the law, the law that was given to God's people from a man named Moses. And so just a few verses earlier in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul wrote this, now before faith came, 
we are held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So now here we have these words of being captive and in prison. These are implying that we are enslaved to something, that we have a guardian put over us. And so, of course, when Paul here in chapter 4 is talking about these elementary principles of the world, he is definitely, most definitely, speaking about the law, but he's also speaking about something different. In Galatians 4, Paul says this, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. Now, this is a different reference than he implied when he was talking about the law. Now, here in the book of Galatians, Paul is talking to a group of Jews and Gentile converts. They've come to know Jesus. People who are Jewish and not Jews are coming to know Jesus. And the subject matter in the book of Galatians is very similar to the book that we just studied recently in the book of Hebrews. What is happening in this area is there's a group of people in that day called the Judaizers. And they're trying to convince people who are Jewish in descent, who have come to know Jesus, they're trying to convince them that they must go backward into old covenant practices. And they're trying to convince those who are not Jewish, who came to faith in Christ, that weren't raised in Judaism, they're trying to convince them that they first must become a Jew if they're ever going to follow Christ. And so here Paul is speaking to non-Jews, and he is saying that you are enslaved, but not to the law, but you were enslaved to those who thought themselves to be God that weren't. And so what he's saying is that you were enslaved to the people that you held as authority in your life to tell you the things to do in your life. So there's a common thread amongst these two implications, a common understanding, even though the law and, and this verse about the Galatians or the Gentiles create vastly different cultures and vastly different lifestyles, they both share a form of legalism that compels one to believe that what we do in this life is about earning merit. It's a life where we're celebrated by accomplishment. It's a life that's celebrated about earning by doing. It's to believe that we get what we deserve. That good is to be rewarded and bad is to be punished. But more broadly than that, it is the pursuit of salvation. Salvation means to be made right. It is to be proven right. We want to be proven right. There is something in all of us that yearns to be proven worthy in front of others and even to ourselves. And that is a direct result of the fall, that we have lost our truest source of rightness or righteousness and worth in our undiluted whole relationship with God that we once had in the garden, that we are fallen, which means that all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers, those in the past and those of the day are seeking the very same thing, the elementary principles of the world. We're trying to obey and pursue. We want to be made right. We want salvation. We believe that we can earn that. And we are governed by that belief that we get what we deserve. Some people in this world call that karma. But what Paul is saying is that is actually slavery. It is actually a form of slavery. It's not true freedom, 
nor is it the ethic of the kingdom of God. In Galatians 2, shortly before he talks about the enslavement of the law, Paul writes this in verse 22. He said, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ and Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God gave the law to his people. He gave the law for their own good. God gives them a law for the people of God. Not that they can earn God's promises because they can't earn God's promises through obeying the law because we're incapable of obeying the law. Yet the law is holy. The law is good. The law is right. Which means that if we fail one area of the law, we fail the entirety of the law. And so to that extent, the law becomes like a curse for humanity. We can't obey it perfectly, yet that is its righteous requirement. It becomes a curse for us. The law then actually comes to reveal our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, our own disobedience. And that is actually a grace for all of us. And because we are hardwired, we're hardwired to believe that we get what we deserve. We still believe that we can tip the scales of goodness in our favor in sight of God. That we believe that if we're good enough, that we just tip the scales of, of goodness in our favor. If we just do enough, if I put my best effort, Lord, and I'm just close enough to your standard, it will mean that God will give me his favor. And we can say that we do the same thing in this life, in the world. We want to tip the scales in this world in front of others that were validated in front of them. That people think that we're worthy, that people think that we're good. But Paul says that's enslaving. Why is it enslaving? It's because you're trying to earn something that you can't earn. You're trying to accomplish something that's impossible. It is as hopeless as trying to dig a hole to China. It's impossible for you ever to be good enough. It's impossible for you to ever be validated in this world, which means that all we are set to do in this world is to flex towards one and each other, to convince each other that we are good, that I am worthy. Do you know who I am? That we try to convince the world of our goodness. But it's folly. It's a hopeless pursuit. You will never find it. That's why it's slavery. It's to pursue something by the wrong means. It's like in this. If you were to go and paint a house and you were absent paint, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter how long you labor with your paintbrush moving it back and forth. You will never accomplish your goal. It is a flawed pursuit. Yet God tells us that there is a reason that we are imprisoned, that he has put everything under the law. And it's this, it's that God's glory would be made known to a broken creation. All of the world is enslaved, held in bondage, under sin, under the law, to the elementary principles of the world, so that with joy in our hearts that we can see one man, one offspring, God himself coming into the world to do the work of salvation himself. 
And that's what Paul says here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And sons implies sons and daughters here. God waited for the perfect moment in humanity. Right here in the Roman world, we're at this apex of conflict. The Romans had developed a system of transportation. They've created roads. They've created shipping routes. They are at the peak of civilization in that time, and they're on the verge of great immigration and great exploration. And just at that moment, God sends forth the Son into the world that his message would spread there and then all over the world. Not a moment too early, not a moment too late. The Christ child comes into the world born of woman born under the law, meaning he was like us in virtually every single way that he might redeem us in every way. Born of woman, hinting at this, is that he is the promised one that we read in Genesis 3, that he is the one that comes from the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, our most, most dire enemy. And that he's born under the law, meaning that he's required to follow every word of it. And how is he going to come and redeem us? How? By obeying the law perfectly and then giving up his life. Jesus lives the perfect life and then he's killed by the same humanity that he's come to rescue. And so we could say it this way, that he didn't get what he deserved. That Christ was the best of us, innocent, but his life was taken. And for good reason, that he would become a ransom for us. That God would do for us what we couldn't. He would come on behalf of our righteousness, of our salvation. He would take the punishment that comes to us in our rejection of God. So that you and I might receive salvation and the inheritance of all of God's promises through faith in Christ. What this means is that you could never earn it. You could never earn your salvation. You could never earn your your righteousness. You could never get truly what you deserve because you deserve condemnation. But in the kingdom of God, we receive it. We receive salvation. We receive righteousness. We receive grace. By faith, we have become adopted sons and daughters of God. Do you see how Jesus changed the paradigm of all of the world? He didn't get what he deserved. He didn't get what he deserved. Why? So that we would not get what we deserve. It is a complete and utter repudiation of the ethics of the kingdom of the world. It says that you don't get what you deserve. That good is, is that says that good is rewarded and bad is punished. But in the kingdom of God, it says that good is desirable, but it's not relevant. And that bad is not about your condemnation. Do you see how this changes everything? Do you see how when the scripture paints Jesus as the light of the, the world, how much of a joy that might be for a world that is stuck in utter darkness, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, trying to earn their own salvation, trying to earn their own righteousness? Can you hear the shackles fall off of those in slavery who cry out to the God by faith, 
saying, we didn't get what we deserve. Christ, we didn't get what we deserved. That is the hope of the gospel. That Christ has done the work for us. That he's achieved all of our truest and needed realities. That we don't get what we deserve. But what we have received is unmerited grace. We didn't earn it. We received it. And received it not on the basis of us, of us but on the basis of God's grace by faith. That's what it means to be adopted. That we didn't get what we deserved. That we have been moved from the ethics of the kingdom of the world that is about earning it into the kingdom of God that is about receiving it. We didn't get what we deserved. More than that, we have now become entitled to all of the blessings that Christ deserves as the spotless, holy Lamb of God. Adoption in the Christian world is a radical, powerful uh, doctrine. Adoption here wouldn't be understood as we might understand adoption today. Adoption in the Roman world is a little bit different than our understanding of adoption. Adoption in this world, you might be compelled, right, by the cuteness of a child, by their innocence, by their potential, you might have reasons for adopting that child outside of your own generosity. But here in the Roman culture, this isn't about child adoption. That's not happening in that world. It's adult adoption, where one is adopted as an adult into the family's inheritance. Now, I don't care how good-looking you are as an adult, right? It is a tremendous act of generosity and grace for somebody to say, hey, you're in, right? You bring me nothing, right? You bring me nothing, but you're going to be in on all of this. The focus in Christian adoption, the adoption of Christ, is on the goodness and the generosity of the one who is making the adoption, not the one who is being adopted. Now, I think that there is a great temptation in this world and within ourselves that uses the doctrine of adoption through faith to somehow justify ourselves or convince ourselves of our own goodness, of our own morality, of our own worth. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's pretend for a moment that you uh, have racked up a very sizable debt at a local store. Uh, The temptation of Kmart's free layaway plan has been too great for you to resist. You have not resisted your desire for indulgence, nor has the store somehow noticed your stupendous spending. Uh, you have literally bought everything in the store and then some, and you didn't know it. And you have acquired a massive debt, a sizable debt that actually would take you and your offspring a whole bunch of lifetimes to pay off. If you ever could pay it off, as you now learn about the compounding interest that will be added to your debt because of your failure to pay. Now, as a result, you're facing criminal prosecution, and jail time. Yet amazingly, amazingly, there is a wealthy benefactor in the area, a man who is generous in heart, with a vast fortune, who without informing you has paid the debt of yours and everyone else in the store, and then includes everyone, including yourself. He writes you into his will. You get a notice that your debt has been forgiven, that's been canceled, that you're free. And then you become to know that this benefactor has graciously 
written you into his will, that you will receive a measure of their fortune and position in the future. Now, would it be odd, would it be foolish for you to then rationalize the generosity of this wealthy benefactor, paying your insurmountable debt and putting you into their will as some sort of credit to your worth or merit. It would be wrong to assume that your debt was paid because you were worth it. To somehow think, I must be a pretty big deal. If that guy was going to come into the store and pay off my debt and then write me into his will, that must mean that I'm pretty big, that I'm kind of cool to promote ourselves through the generosity of this wealthy benefactor. We would say, how arrogant. What a narcissist to do that. Yet that happens all the time theologically today. I hear this all too often, that we put the emphasis of adoption and we focus it on the worth of mankind and not on the generosity and the goodness of Christ. And so we might hear things or say things like that, that, that communicate that if Christ died for me, then that must mean I'm pretty special. If he died for me, God didn't die for no piece of junk. I must have supreme worth. Do you hear how twisted that makes it? It's incredibly tempting. It makes Jesus' sacrifice as being done because I'm worth it. That, that his love and his sacrifice is due me because of who I am. We're so needy. Yet our worth and our value is predetermined in our creation. It is not through our redemption. Our redemption is only because of the goodness and the grace of God, not because of ours. And this is why the term adoption is so extremely powerful, because you have received adoption that you cannot earn. There is nothing that you and I could ever bring to Christ that would be worth what he has done. Adoption proves God's love for us. It does not validate our own virtue and goodness. The joy of adoption is resting instead in our Redeemer, in our gracious and glorious and generous God, because in Him we've received all of the things that we've worked so desperately to accomplish in this world. Tim Keller writes it this way in his book, Every Good Endeavor. He writes this, he says, the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work. For we, already, we are already proven and secure since we already have in Christ the things other people work for, salvation, self-worth, a good conscience, and peace. Now we may work simply to love God and our neighbors. It is a sacrifice of joy, a limitation that offers freedom. And do you see how this is a sacrifice of joy? That everything is true, that everything is needed and wanted in my life is secure in a God that is timeless and unchangeable and without flaw. Everything has been done for me. Everything has been found in him. 
which means that I simply can live to love and enjoy him and the people around me. It frees us up. And how do we know that God loves us? How do we know that he has adopted us? How do we know that we have the inheritance that is given to us by faith? It says here that God has given us the spirit into our life that cries out, Abba, Father. This is an intimate yearning between a child and a father, a loving father. It is a cry of the broken, of the enslaved, of the burdened, who upon receiving the kingdom of God through adoption, knowing that we didn't get what we deserve, but have all the blessings that come to Christ through faith, we cry out with joy and freedom and hope that we didn't get what we deserved in Christ. And in these verses, we see the beautiful workings of the Godhead, that God the Father sets the plan, creates the plan, that the Son come in the fullness of time as the agent to do the work of God's plan and of the Holy Spirit who is the indwelling presence of God who brings the application of the work of Christ in our life. And so what we're preparing for in this season of Advent, what we're preparing for in the coming of Christ in the world is that God is faithful to his promises. It is a story of God turning slaves into sons. And it's a story that has a unique beginning. We know that when Christ comes into the world as a child, that something radical is about to happen. That God is going to use the weak and the poor. He's going to use the things that are unnatural in this world to change the hearts of men and women. He's going to change the whole ethos of those of faith. That we didn't get what we deserve, but we got what Christ deserves. And so here's the question for us, is how do we live in a world, living by faith in a God that didn't give us what we wanted, but gave us all that we could ever imagine through Christ by faith? How do we live in a world whose entire ethos lives towards people getting what they deserve. I think Paul gives us some hints, and I want to pull up Romans 8 to close our time together today. In Romans 8, verse 15 through 17, he says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, this is, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those are words that we don't like to hear, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We live in this already not yet kingdom of God that we are rightful heirs to the promises of God, but they aren't realized in our life yet. Yet we live in a world that is bent on personal salvation, on being declared right, on being known as worthy, on others seeing our goodness, on people getting what they deserve. How do we live in a world where we know that we didn't get what we deserve while everyone else is trying to do it? Well, it means that we must suffer. It means that, that we as people who didn't get what we deserve, that we give that same grace to other people. That even though people might hurt us or wrong us or betray us, 
just as we didn't get what we deserve, we shouldn't give them what they deserve. It means that we might be passed over from promotions because we aren't willing to use the world ethics to get a greater measure of resources. It means that we might be laughed at and scoffed. I, I, my, my conviction with my kids is how do I make my... I know my kids are going to be awkward, right? And that's just not because of the birth. They're going to be awkward because I want them to know Jesus. But how do I make it that they're not so awkward that their life is just hell on earth considering the way our culture lives? And so the promise that God has for us is that when we have suffered for a little while, that he will come again. That we live by his ethics and that we trust him by faith. How do we trust him by faith? Every morning you wake up and you turn your car on, fully believing that it's going to start. Every day by faith, you come home believing that your house is going to be there. You trust in those things. You are convinced that they're realities. And so the scripture teaches us that we must take every thought captive in our life. That we must trust God above ourselves and above everything else. It is about us reminding ourselves every single day of the necessity of Christ coming for us. That we didn't get what we deserve. And we remember that in him is our worth and our value. In him are all of the joys of our promises in the future. We work on trusting him. We pray that God would help us to trust him as we live in a world that is bent on getting what we deserve. Would you pray with me that God would do that in our lives? Lord, we are grateful that we have received adoption. Lord, we have the pains and the scars of a life that was dedicated to getting what we deserve and, that, and believing that others should get what they deserve. Lord, we are guilty of trying to earn our salvation. We are guilty about trying to convince others of our goodness, that we're better than them. Lord, we're guilty of making this about ourselves. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, will you teach us to live a life in your kingdom, a kingdom that has promises that are better than we can imagine, that, Lord, that we would find joy in the knowledge that you have given us what we don't deserve, that Christ has absorbed all of our wrath and all of our punishment, and that we are adopted by faith in him. And so, Lord, help us in our minds to trust you above the voices of the world, above our desire for influence and power and prestige in this world, that, Lord, you would help us to live today knowing all of our future promises are secured in you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your wonderful and beautiful name. Amen.